discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolokwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I discuss the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week is Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan chosen bays mindful eating on the go practices for eating with awareness wherever you are uh, i've read about mindful eating but had not read a book about it so wanted to read one and so i'll share that with you on monday kind of a quick turnaround um, from today's show because monday here was memorial day in the united states so we did not do live programming so i'll talk about the book today and then talk about that book on monday night's show the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about today is Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome by Tai Tashiro. And um, Dr. Tashiro uh, himself mentions that he feels he's an awkward individual and even what that means can be up to some, I guess, discussion to try to understand. But we've all felt in an awkward situation before, in a social situation where either we say something uncomfortable or that might be a little bit wrong or off or we feel an awkward silence sometimes we'll talk about if you're with someone and you both don't know what to say or maybe you're in an elevator with someone and there's those few seconds where you're waiting to get to your destination or to your floor and they can feel like a long time but at times we can all feel awkward but in this book he's also focusing on individuals who feel more awkward more of the time or even in a way he uses this term awkward as a way of describing people. So he'll talk about awkward people and non-awkward people. And awkward people are those who in general, social things, social situations, don't come to them as easily as they do to most people or to non-awkward individuals. And he discusses some of the science behind that. And one way of looking at this is that people who are awkward, the way he describes it, they have more of what you'd call a spotlighted focus. So he talks about imagining a play, and if you're watching The Lion King uh, on Broadway, and most people will see the whole uh, scene, and they'll focus more on the middle, and there'll be light on the whole scene, but he was saying someone who's more awkward will have a spotlight maybe a little bit off, far to the left or off-center, and they'll notice in amazing detail some aspects of what's going on, but they might miss the bigger picture. And that's sometimes what we see with people who are awkward when it comes to social situations. They might get fixated on smaller things and they might miss the bigger picture. Or they might not really know what most people tend to pay attention to, so they'll miss things. So for example, even when it comes to reading emotions, they might not be as good uh, as, as others. And one reason for that is there's research showing that they'll focus more on the mouth whereas most people focus more on their 
uh, people's eyes that they're talking to to understand uh, what they're saying or what they're feeling and to get a better idea of that. And so like most skills or personality traits, abilities, social um, intelligence or emotional intelligence is on a spectrum. For some people, it's going to be easier for than it is for others. Some people just pick up on things more easily. They're better at uh, understanding what other people might be feeling uh, and or while others might have a harder time with that. And so people who are awkward just overall have a harder time being social. And they could be called other things too. He uses that word awkward, but sometimes um, words or phrases like Asperger's can be used or autism. But to him, he's saying awkward are people who don't quite meet those criteria to be considered diagnosed with Asperger's or autism, but they still are a little bit socially off or in a way socially disadvantaged. And if we look at even autism traits, we see that it's not something that is black or white, even though we have diagnoses and these labels that we say this person has autism, this person does not. But like anything, anxiety, depression, it's not that some people have anxiety and some people don't. Everyone has anxiety, just some people have it to a stronger degree that is for some reason or other or is labeled as pathological or meeting the criteria for a diagnosis. So he cites the article uh, or research in this book on autism showing that if we look at autism traits using a questionnaire, um, which uh, gives you an autism quotient, as they call it, all people or almost all people have some level of these autistic traits. So it kind of has a bell-shaped curve. But then there's some people who have more of them, and these includes traits such as social skills deficits, communication problems, they're more detail-focused, they have trouble switching attention, and an active imagination. And so it's not that people who are considered um, normals, if you want to call them that, have none of these traits, but they have them to a lesser degree. So like most things, we see that it's a, a spectrum. It's not just that either you're awkward or you're not even though he might use it as a label, but that everyone has some degree uh, of um, awkwardness or difficulties with these types of things, but some people have them more than others, which is a reminder of when we use these labels, to me, we have to be aware of sometimes they can be very helpful in having a common language. It can be helpful at times for treatment to understand what people are going through, and that is very important, but sometimes we don't want to get too tied in to the labels and make them so meaningful that this is Asperger's or this is autism or even um, Asperger's was considered its own diagnosis separate from autism but now it's not its own diagnosis on the latest diagnostic and statistical manual it is included as part of autism so um, it reminds me of when there was all that discussion about Pluto being a planet and then it was not a planet and then it was a planet and people were trying to figure out uh, what's going on and what that means. And some of that is arbitrary, depending on how the scientists who make the definitions determine what are the criteria for a planet or not planet. It, it makes it such that we either say it's a planet or not. And same with these disorders. We can say this is a disease because it's been deemed that these are the criteria to meet that, or it could be changed or the names can change. And so, yes, these things can be important, but I think we also have to be aware not to get too tied into the labels as having some bigger meaning than just some way of trying to understand humans, human behavior, and if you want to call it pathology or different types of um, behavior or things of that nature. He, he also talks about some research in neuroscience that shows that 
people that he considers awkward versus non-awkward, uh, we tend to have a social brain that we have and also a non-social brain, parts of our brain that are activated when we're trying to look at social situations versus when we're trying to do things that might be more considered book smarts. And what they found is that people who are more socially awkward, they actually, even in social situations, are still using more of their book smarts style. And so this is why you might notice people who are more this way, they analyze social situations in a different way. It's more about, um, rather than looking at the whole scene and picking up what's going on, they'll focus on individual parts as if they're putting together a formula. And so it's as if they are really using a different part of their brain or a different way of thinking, even in social situations, which is why they can come off as odd or different because they're not approaching even social situations the way that most of us do. Now, the book goes into detail about awkwardness and what it is, and he shares some of his own experiences, which I think are actually quite interesting. He is in that way a self-proclaimed awkward individual tied to Shiro, the author of this book. Um, and actually, some of that I thought was very interesting. One, that he was sharing about himself and those experiences, but also when he talked about how his parents dealt with him. I thought that was quite interesting because it seemed that the way he described it, his parents accepted him as he was, that they saw he was a little bit different when it came to social things or that it was more of a challenge for him, but they seemed to accept him, that that was him, while at the same time trying to help him navigate in what is a social world, that we have to be able to be social to survive. So it wasn't just that, okay, you have a hard time with social things, so that's it. It was that, okay, you have a hard time with social things, let's see how we can help you. So they would do things like trying to break down social situations into steps, for example, steps of three. So if he was going to order food at a fast food restaurant, it would be first go to the back of the line, um, wait patiently or and you know whatever it might be. Or when you're going to order, look at the person in the eye, say what you want, and then put out the money to pay for what it is and say thank you. And in helping him break down things into these types of components, it made it easier for him to function socially and to get through certain things. And I thought that was interesting because it's what I try to recommend to all parents when it comes to whatever it is your children are dealing with. First of all, see them for who they are, accept them for who they are, and also accept that there isn't some one right way for them to be. So when we're talking about being awkward or uh, you know, social competence or being social, it's not that every child or every human being has to be a social butterfly and want to talk to lots of people and, and be very socially fluent in this way and, and make their way through a party and meet all these kinds of people or whatever we might imagine is the right way to be. Some people are different. They might not approach things that way or they might not be as good as at that or doing it in that way. And we want to accept them as being different, not better or worse, or have some standard that they're supposed to meet. So if your child is a little bit socially awkward, you don't want to think, no, my child has to become this popular kid who makes it, um, you know, uh, a very popular person who makes lots of friends and it's easy for them to go through social situations. They might not ever be that. While at the same time, encouraging them to grow. So a lot of times I'll work with parents who say, my kid is quote unquote shy. Maybe they're introverted. Maybe you want to call it social anxiety, whatever it might be, which can overlap with being awkward. And they say, well, they don't want to go to the kid, uh, friend's birthday party. But then when they go, they have a good time. So how do we deal with this? So on one hand, it could be, you know what? Your kid says they don't like to go, so don't ever have them go. They never need to go to a birthday party. 
And on the other hand, it could be who cares, they don't want to go, you know they should go, so you're going to send them and force them to go no matter what. And really, as it usually is, it's somewhere in the middle where we want to approach things. We don't want to just protect them and shelter them completely. We want to accept them as they are, but also encourage them to grow. And we don't want to throw them into the fire without support and compassion. So we find that balance where we actually say, okay, I know you don't like going, but how can we make it easier for you to go so you can have a good time and see that it's not such a scary experience? And in this way, slowly help them grow. And I felt that as the author shared some of his own experiences, it seemed like his parents approached his awkwardness in this way. They saw him for who he was, they accepted that, but they also recognized that it would help him to grow and to be able to become able to face social situations in a better way. And they helped him with that. And as he puts it, even though he might be awkward, he's very happy with his social life, which is another thing to keep in mind. It, uh, there's not one way of being social that's good. Not everyone has to have lots of friends. Some people actually prefer having a smaller group of close friends that they enjoy. And that is important. And he also mentions how we might think about being popular as the goal, which a lot of people do have that goal, but that really doesn't uh, serve you very well. Actually, it could be even better to be likable, not that you should strive to be likable, but there's a difference between being popular and being likable. And what they find is that people who are likable, they tend to be um, three things. They're fair, kind, and loyal. And if you can have those characteristics, and if you can instill them in your children that you might not have all the friends, but when you have friends, be kind to them, be fair with everyone, and be loyal to your friends once you have them. Those are the things that tend to make friendships grow and flourish. And so even if you are an awkward person or someone who social things doesn't come very easily to, uh, it's quite okay, and you can have a perfectly fine social life and even a romantic life. Dating is awkward already for most people, so as he talks about in the book, for awkward people, it's going to be even more awkward but they can still navigate it and make it and get married and, and have a family and anything they'd like to do if that's what they want. So we shouldn't feel like you're limited because you can't do those things. Some of them might be more challenging, but still you can do that. Now, he also talks about how awkward people, they tend to have non-social interests that they get uh, very uh, into and sometimes too into, which also can make it challenging for them to make friends because they'll want to talk about certain things um, that might not be interesting to other people. And this is also something common we see in people with Asperger's, and now even people who might not meet that diagnosis might still have that same type of pattern, where they'll want to talk about their obsession and they only want to talk about that thing. And this can be challenging for them in social situations, but he mentions that awkward people tend to be hyper-focused also, which can be challenging in social situations or even how they live their lives in a social way but it can allow them to be very good at certain things like doing the deliberate practice necessary to become an expert or develop, develop expertise. And so they have some capabilities and abilities because of this awkward side of their personality that actually can help them. So again, we see that it's not just that awkwardness is an all bad thing, but it's a characteristic that like lots of things can have good elements and bad elements that go together. So someone who is um, very spontaneous, that might be good, but sometimes they can be so uh, unorganized because of that spontaneity that it can be challenging for someone too. So it's not that it's all good or all bad, it's that it has different components. So people who tend to be socially awkward tend to have other uh, areas where they might excel or other ways that their personality actually can help them. 
And as for all of us, we want to try to maximize the good and minimize the bad and how it hurts us and affects our life, but also recognize that these characteristics that we have, we shouldn't judge ourselves and definitely we shouldn't judge our children or others for being a certain way and recognize that there's lots of ways of being different. Not one is the right way to be, but we want to see how our child is different. And if it's you yourself, see that it's okay for you to be that way. You might have interests that others don't have, but if you find them interesting, great. And you know what? There's probably other people that have that interest too. It might not be the mainstream, but especially now with the advent of the internet, it's become easier for people to find others. Hey, you like this random game that most people don't like? Wonderful. Let's enjoy that game together. Um, or you like to collect stamps and most people don't, but I can find lots of people now that collect stamps and make friends with them. And so with your children, you can do that too. Their interests might not be the things that you thought are the cool things for them to like or you'd want for them to like, but don't stifle them in their interest and allow for them to uh, pursue things that they find interesting, even if they aren't in the mainstream, because that's what they enjoy and they can actually make great contributions in that way as well. So again, there is a message in the book of accepting people as they are, accepting ourselves as we are, accepting our children as we are, while at the same time finding that there is room to grow and face challenges that we might have. And different people will have different challenges for an awkward person, social situations and understanding the social world might be more of a challenge, but it doesn't mean they can't get better at it and they can't improve in that area while also uh, understanding the goodness in being who they are, as he says, and why they're socially awkward and why that's awesome. So that was Awkward by Tai Tashiro. And the book of the week for this week, again, is Mindful Eating on the Go by Jan Chosen Bays. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. In the first segment, I was talking about the book Awkward by Tai Tashiro. And in the book, he also talks about how we're going in a direction of making things more awkward or the world is going in a more awkward direction. And he talks about dating and relationships and also a bit about technology. And that was a part I wanted to also focus on is uh, how he describes in the book people who are more awkward or he labels as awkward and deal with social things in a different way. But I do think we are moving more towards becoming awkward socially with each other. And it's a very cliche thing to blame phones and technology, but that is a big part of what is contributing to this, that people are becoming a lot worse or not developing those skills of having conversations face to face, of having uncomfortable conversations, or even what I think is happening is that we're thinking that uh, we're, we're, one, not developing the skills so things can feel awkward more easily because we're not used to having the conversations, but also because it's become so much easier to avoid conversations, especially actually having them face-to-face -face or verbally, audibly, and we have them over text, we get this feeling that we shouldn't have interactions that feel awkward and we should avoid them. And so in that way, it creates this spiral where it's that we're not doing it as much, things feel more awkward, and because we can avoid it, we get more uh, likely to want to avoid or we do avoid situations that 
make us feel awkward. And so in the younger generation, it's not just the younger generation, but also in all ages, we find that people avoid conversations in general, but I think unfortunately this is becoming worse. People are choosing to avoid those kinds of things. And this is why I think from a young age, we want to teach our kids to have conversations face to face. And as parents, it's so important for you to have uncomfortable conversations with your kids and show them that it's okay, that it doesn't feel very good in the moment. And we can even acknowledge that, but it's still important to have these types of conversations. But parents themselves too often shy away from these things. Well, I didn't know how to talk about sex with my kid and she mentioned something. So I just ignored it or I changed the subject or I made a joke and then never brought it up again. Or I didn't know what to say about drugs and my kid said it. So I didn't know what to say or something about racism came up and I didn't know how to handle the situation. So I didn't want to talk to my kids or something about gays and lesbians came up and I didn't know what to say, or I thought maybe if I talk about it, my kid will think something or think this thing. So I avoided it altogether. So as parents, you have this responsibility to initiate these conversations. It's less likely for your kids to initiate them. They might ask a question, but you especially have to make sure if they ask you, don't turn it down. But especially at times you might have to initiate certain conversations on certain topics and how you handle them will affect how your child is going to feel about talking about things. And in order to live a good life and to have good relationships, we have to be able to have what we consider the difficult and uncomfortable conversations. So it's up to you to model that with your children from a very young age. And so even you might feel like it's easier to text them about something. And sometimes that will happen. But if you can, make sure you have that face-to-face -face conversation because we definitely are losing that. So there's this one aspect of having the uncomfortable conversations, showing your kids that it's okay. And then the other side of the technology, it's also very dangerous. And everyone can relate to this, that we rather avoid the conversations and we do it in several ways. Of course, one way is to completely avoid it. And so we can talk about... Uh, the phenomenon that's not really new anymore of ghosting, which is where people just stop responding, which is that someone, let's say they go on a couple dates and now they're not interested in that person. And instead of that, letting them know I'm not interested or whatever it is, maybe they're getting back with an ex or whatever might be going on. They say, well, I'm just not going to respond to that person and they'll slowly get the point. I'm just not going to say anything. And after all, they'll know, or sometimes they'll do it in a slower way. They'll respond less frequently with shorter texts without asking questions back and slowly disappear rather than having that uncomfortable conversation. And what I find really interesting about if you talk to people about ghosting and what they might respond is they say, well, I didn't want to hurt the person. I, the reason why I didn't respond to them or tell them I'm not interested or tell them I'm not available anymore is because I didn't want to hurt them. And this is one of the many ways that we're good at tricking ourselves into telling ourselves that I'm doing something because I'm a good person or because it's a good thing to do or because I'm being so nice. But really, that's not the case at all. It's not that the person doesn't want to hurt the person. It's just that we don't want to be there when the person gets hurt or we don't want to feel the guilt strongly in that moment when we have to let them know the thing they don't want to hear, which we don't even know maybe they'll be okay hearing it and we're making it much bigger in our head, which is usually the case. But it's not because we're being nice. It's that I don't want to face it. I don't want to have that conversation when I have to tell the person, you know what, I actually don't see a match here. 
or I'm not sure this is going to work out, or my ex is back in my life and I want to see if I can make it work with him or her. We don't want to have that conversation and be there. It's not that we're being nice. It's actually being much meaner to let someone try to figure it out over the course of a week or two weeks or to completely not respond to someone. That completely is taking away any uh, feeling of giving them respect of just being a person of saying, I'm going to respond to you. So it's not the nicer thing to do. And we have to make sure we don't fool ourselves in this way to say, I'm, I'm actually going to go to this person out of my kindness of my heart. No, you just don't want to deal with the situation. You don't want to feel the guilt. You want to just let them deal with it. And I think it's very unfortunate and it's a way of just avoiding and avoiding our responsibility. It's much better to have the conversation with the person as uncomfortable and awkward as it might be and let them know that you, in a kind, respectful way, let them know what what is happening, that you no longer want to continue, whatever it is, friendship or romantic relationship, dating, and let them move on. Give them that chance to then move on more quickly than to draw it out. But to tell ourselves that we're avoiding telling them because we're being nice, I want people to notice that it's not being nice, it's that we don't want to be there when the uncomfortable or mean thing is happening. And another aspect of this is that we have to realize that although we might think we're hurting them, people can handle these kinds of things. And sometimes we build it up too much in our head that, okay, if I tell him or if I tell her I don't see a match, they're just going to be devastated. They might hurt a little bit, but people are going to be okay. We can handle these things. And if they can't handle that kind of conversation, then that's more on them and they can't handle dating in general because you have to be ready to get rejection or to date people that it doesn't work out where one person is interested and the other one is not. This is part of, I don't want to say game as if it's a game, but I mean game is in part of what's going to happen that we have to be ready for. And so don't make yourself so important to think that if you tell someone you're not interested, it's going to devastate them. That might be your own projection that you have such a hard time with rejection that you wouldn't be able to handle it, but don't think that that is going to happen. So I'm all about trying to promote uncomfortable conversations because I see the hurt that is caused when we avoid them. And so when we think that if something is awkward, we have to avoid it, as the title of the book I was talking about today is about uh, being awkward as a person. But if we think that any situation that is awkward should be avoided, well, we're going to have a problem. Um, even when we talk about awkward silences, sometimes actually silence can be a very okay and good thing. But if we're talking with someone, we think that someone has to constantly fill the space, that if there's any emptiness, that's not good. And we're going to start to feel anxious and we have to fill it. But sometimes it actually could be good if you can sit with someone in silence for some time, not because you have nothing to talk about, but because you can just sit in silence and that can be okay. Awkwardness is not something to be avoided. And also we can recognize that some things that we think are awkward don't have to be so. I've even worked with married couples or heard married, cu married couples talk about how, well, I wanted to tell my husband that I didn't like this, but it would have been so awkward to talk to my husband or to tell my wife I was unhappy about this part of our relationship. It's so awkward. And is it uncomfortable? Yes, I get that. But if we can't even have those kinds of conversations with our romantic partner, we're in a lot of trouble. And we're going to miss a lot of things that are happening or that could happen to benefit the relationship if we're avoiding these conversations. If I'm afraid to tell uh, my partner that I'm unhappy about something or that something hurt me because it's going to be awkward or I might hurt their feelings or it's going to be weird, then there's a very uh, little chance for the relationship to do well. 
And something I've mentioned before, and this is taking it in a way to an extreme, but I think it has uh, a point about what I'm talking about, is that I think a lot of affairs, a lot of infidelity are partially the result of unhad conversations. People are not happy in the marriage, but they don't know how to express it, or they feel like it's too awkward to talk about not being happy. And so they stay unhappy, and the resentment and the disappointment builds, and their dissatisfaction builds, and then they might find themselves looking for getting what they want somewhere else. They might find themselves being attracted to someone at work, or going online, or doing something, because they're not happy in the relationship, but also because they're not feeling comfortable enough to express what they're feeling in the relationship, to see if what they want can be something they get from the relationship. Can their partner give them that? But if you don't tell your partner what you want, it's impossible for them to give you what you want. And so you continue being unsatisfied and unhappy, and you're more likely to go seek it out somewhere else. And then you think, well, they weren't giving me what I wanted, but you have to ask them. You have to give them that chance. And this is what can be so uh, important that we have those conversations to let each other know this is something that's going on for me. I want to talk to you about it. And even it can get to the point when someone is so unhappy and feels so unsatisfied for so long that they almost feel like they deserve to cheat. I'm not, I've been so unhappy for so long. So almost I deserve to get what I want from someone, don't I? Don't I deserve to feel desired when my partner doesn't make me feel desired? Don't I deserve to have someone who makes me feel this way that I want to feel and my partner doesn't give me that? You might deserve that to some degree to feel that way, but when you've made a commitment to someone and you're in that relationship, they deserve for you to talk to them about it and see if you can figure it out together rather than you break that commitment and that trust with that person and seek it out somewhere else. So yes, you deserve to be happy in your relationship, but your partner also deserves the opportunity to see if they can, and through the relationship, you can get what you want rather than you seeking it out outside. So we have to be able to have these conversations. Even I tell couples every week or every so often, you have check-ins where you talk about how happy you feel in the relationship, how satisfied you're feeling in different aspects, emotionally, uh, sexually, as far as how much time you're spending, support, other aspects of the relationship really check in. And it can be uncomfortable because if your partner says, you know what, I'm not satisfied with our sex life. That's an uncomfortable conversation. Definitely. People can take it very personally. They can feel lots of things. But that's a conversation that needs to be had rather than, well, I'm not happy in our sex life. I'm not going to say anything for years and years and years. And then maybe I feel like I deserve to have sex with someone else because I'm not getting what I want. And that's what people do. So we have to have those conversations with each other. We have to create that type of comfort to have the difficult conversations. They're never going to be easy, but we can make them easier and recognize that even if it's not easy, we can do it. But having an awkward conversation is much better than having infidelity or having unhappiness or having divorce because we didn't talk about certain things. So we have to push forward, push through the awkwardness and realize that's okay. That's just in a way telling us this is something important to talk about. And in life in general, not avoid these things and teach our kids from a young age that uncomfortable conversations are not something to shy away from. If we love each other and we trust each other and feel okay with each other, we can feel okay to have those conversations, even if they don't feel good, trusting that the other person will be kind and respectful and it'll end well. Even if it doesn't feel well or feel good during the moment, it can 
end well and it actually can lead to some benefits. And especially with your partner, if you find I'm afraid to bring this up or I have a hard time sharing, I'm unhappy about something, that itself should be a red flag that something's not okay. And don't think that if because you're going to say something, your husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend won't like it, that means you shouldn't say it. That's not the case. No, you shouldn't say something mean to them intentionally. But if you're unhappy about something, it's important to talk about those things. And again, if you can't talk about them or if you don't feel comfortable, either it means something's up with your partner, something is up with the relationship, or something is up with you that you can't have those conversations. And all those things need to be looked at. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. And truly, thanks to you and your father, Dr. Holakui, that have truly helped us all, especially Iranian and Persian people, um, or Farsi language people, um, tremendously. Thank so you. My, it's our so pleasure. Thank you so much. Both of you. We are so grateful. And yes, Dr. Farid, uh, I have a very, very, I could say, um, uh, confusing and also hard uh, situation. Uh, it has to do with my daughter. Um, I have only one child, and she's now 26 and a half. And um, she went to school. I was in another state. We were both in another state. She finished her high school in that state. And then uh, she got accepted at school in L.A., a very, very good school in L.A. So um, uh, she was going to school, and she was also working part-time. She wanted to do that herself. Um, and she met uh, this uh, man, boy, about, I would say, uh, eight years older than herself while she was working. And um, long story short, um, after about two, three months that apparently she was seeing him, uh, she called me and told me that uh, she had met this man and she wants me to meet him. And this man um, has uh, proposed to her to be married to her. Okay. And of course, she was... Uh, second year of the school and I was very, very of course against that and I said, no, no, you have to finish your school and, um, you know, all the questions that a mother has for a situation like that and although I'm divorced but I still called her dad and I said, this is the situation I need your help here so, um, again uh, long story short, she insisted that I should meet him and I did meet the man. Um, and uh, again, um, although I talked to him, I talked to his mom, and I said, uh, my daughter is not mature to be married at this time, and she has not finished with her school. How old and was she? Went, How old was she at that time? At that time, she was 19. Okay. Yes, mm -hmm. right. Um, so I, um, I 
gave him exactly how I felt, and I was very sad about this situation because my daughter was not listening to me. She was listening to the man more than she was listening to me. Well, so, I mean, <laughs> let me stop you there for a second. Even when I hear you say she was listening more to the man than you, you're in a way you're implying she's supposed to be listening to you. I don't think she should be listening to the man either. She has to make her own decision. But there is a way that you're saying that that makes it seem that she should listen to what you say and, and do what you want her to do. Now, maybe uh, getting yeah. it married at 19, I could see how you were concerned. But the way you're saying that is that you are the person she should listen to and really that itself can be an issue but just pointing that out but uh you know we can keep keep going Thank on you. Yeah. I, I i understand yeah. you're right i i know what you're talking about you're right so um because i was explaining to her it's first of all marrying at this age is too young second of all you haven't finished school third of all um <laughs> very different background. Um, of course, he's American, and she, although my daughter was born in America, but um, she different background of culture. And also, uh, the man has a very uh, family, has a very special religion. I'd rather not to say it uh, okay. probably at this time, but a uh, very special religion um, in that it I think they're a small community. They have that religion. Uh, so for many, many reasons, uh, I didn't want this to happen. Anyway, it didn't work. I did meet uh, the man, man very charming, um, uh, very, very charming. But um, he had gone to school for two years also and had not continued. But he has his own so-called uh, construction company. Um, that's another long story. So um, I, I talked to him and I explained my concern. And uh, But uh, at the end, uh, none, none of what I said worked. Everyone in my family was against that. And we tried to question him afterwards uh, about many things. And, of course, that didn't work and okay. he didn't uh, give us answer. So anyway, the marriage happened. Mm -hmm. The problem that uh, started happening, uh, my daughter um, started hiding her problems at the marriage from me. Well, so that's yes. Yeah, so that's the, and that's um, in a lot of ways by your own doing. And this is exactly. what happens very often. I'll just make the comment because I see it happen so much uh, in Persian families. We have lots of particular rules, sometimes from religion or culture, about who you can and can't marry. And a lot of times other things that parents just won't approve for various reasons, the relationship. But what ends up happening is, one, overall, you push them more towards that person. But what I see happen time and time again is even if the person has issues in the relationship, they won't come tell you about them because they know that you're against the relationship and you're going to attack it and say, I told you so. And you won't. they won't get an unbiased uh response from you so we push them away unfortunately when we make ourselves so against the relationship so and it could actually isolate them further and push them closer towards that person that they are with okay so she was having issues but was hiding it from you which i'm guessing means at some point you found out what was going on somehow exactly and um it's in a very sad sad way um although i 
they were both in contact with me. After the marriage, I did tell my son-in-law at the time that uh, although I have been against the marriage, but you guys made the decision. But at this time, you, I look at you and uh, feel about you like you're my son. Mm-hmm. So let's be friends and let's uh, work this together. Okay. And he agreed, and uh, he started calling me mom. He still calls me mom. Um, so, um, but but none of the stuff that was happening at the marriage, my uh, my daughter never shared with me, and uh, n- neither with her uh, dad. You know, even the dad wasn't at the mm-hmm. wedding. I was the only one with my brother at the wedding, so no, nobody from my family came. And the reason I went was because I just thought, well, I cannot not to go. No, so I, I anyway, think that was right to go. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so um, um, it, it has so many aspects that is. I'm sure there are, but we'll have to limit them in a way just to get to the heart of it. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, she had gotten pregnant at the honeymoon, mm-hmm. and uh, so she called me and she said that she said, "Mom, I don't know what to do. This is the situation. I'm I'm a baby myself. This is the sentence she mm-hmm. gave me." And uh, what should I do? And uh, I said, I cannot make that decision for you. That's between you and your husband. And uh, anyway, uh, the, this, the decision they made was, you know, keep the baby. Mm, of course, the baby was born. And uh, But during this time, uh, my daughter, because of the, she felt like it was a wrong decision that she got married, she was under a huge amount of stress that she turned to to drugs. Mm. Um, a friend of her uh, told her, let's do this, you feel better. Anyway, so that's when my son-in-law called me and told me, Mom, uh, you know, my wife is now in this situation. Of course, for a mom, a Persian mom, especially or any mom, I... I almost had a heart attack because my daughter was the kind who gave speeches at high school mm-hmm. against drug and alcohol for other children. So she knew exactly how wrong this is. But for her to turn to this, yeah. I knew what, she was... What was she addicted to? Yes. No, what meth. was she addicted Meth? Yes, meth. Wow, okay. That's the a very, worst thing you could probably... That's one of the... Yeah, that's very powerful drug. Yeah, okay. Um right. And so, and so the I, husband's, I is, hold on one second, the husband's sure. religion, is it one of those religions that doesn't believe in any, even alcohol or? Exactly. Okay. I, I've already talked to your father about uh-huh. that long time ago, about uh-huh. four years ago. Um, so how long yes. ago was this that you're talking about, that you got this call? Uh, four years ago. Okay. And I did, uh, yes, talk. And I, so I immediately got a plane and went to her place and we talked and uh, I, I couldn't believe it because I yeah. know my daughter very well. So, um, but this anyway, is, you know, I get that you're, the way you talk about her, and I know she was your only daughter, but it's also just a reminder we're human beings. I know your daughter was, sounds like she's a wonderful girl and she was a great girl, but Anyone can fall into these types of things. Now, maybe you're more surprised because of how she talked about things when she was younger. And obviously, anyone is going to be devastated that their child is dealing with drug addiction. It's it's very horrible. But 
she's still a human. And so we have to re remember that we all can fall into these places. Unfortunately, they can be very challenging to go through. But you keep mentioning as if she should never have been able to do this. And the reason why I also mention that is there's a way that you don't see her as a full person, that she can have these good and bad parts or she could have made mistakes. There's something about the way you talk about her as because she's different. And I know we all want to see our children as different, but she's still like everyone else who has these vulnerabilities and susceptibilities. And there could be a way that you weren't seeing her fully for who she was, that she had these other sides too. And you were only focusing on the positive or the good or that she was this certain kind of person. But nonetheless, I could imagine... You are 100% right. Okay. I agree with you. Okay, so how, yeah. you were, I'm sure, devastated, but you went there, this is four years ago, to see how you can help or get involved. Okay. And the yes. baby, how old was the baby at this point? Two? Uh, no, uh, no, it's been, uh, at that time, she, he just was born. Okay. Did she use while she was pregnant? Apparently, oh. although nothing was wrong with the baby. Okay, and thankfully, well, was okay, okay. But apparently she was. Okay. Yes. So, um, so of course, a lot of fighting between him and her and all that. So we started talking. We started going, you know, talking about going to the facilities, doing something and all that. So that that whole thing, uh, she stopped and was fine. And then um, again, uh, she got pregnant within a year and a half. Although she was, she was doing everything not to get pregnant, but for well, some reason she's very fertile. When you say, you know, the, the drugs, like you said it stopped like this very simple thing. But if she was addicted mm -hmm. to crystal meth, that's not going to be like mm -hmm. an easy process or something that just disappears. So, You're right. Okay. That, that they didn't disappear. Yeah. Actually. Well, and that's why, you know, that, you know, that's I'm still hearing in how you said it was almost like, okay, she dealt with it, it's done. And maybe that's how you felt at that time. But that could have been missing that this is still on, there's a big problem. And addiction is not something that, okay, well, she stopped using, so now we don't have to think about it anymore. We still have to be very concerned about that. And it, it's an ongoing process. And of course, we want to look at what else was going on that contributed to even turning towards the drugs, which exactly. she wasn't happy, and all that. Now, uh, we're at a commercial break, so I'm going to stop us now, and then we'll continue after the break. We've got a little bit of background. We'll get more into what's happened since then and what's going on now, okay? Okay. Thank you so sure. much. Sure. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back before the break. We were with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yes. Okay. We were talking about your daughter um, up to this point. So you you said she's 26 and a half um, at the age of 19, got serious with someone, and they got married, and then they had a child. And four years ago, you got a call that she was addicted to drugs and went to help out. And I guess she went through rehab and some things and seemed like things were okay, at least for then. And then she got pregnant again, and then... Uh, that's in a way where we had left the story. So I'll let you continue. Right. Okay. Uh, the, the second child was born too, and everything okay. But this is the situation. Now she says, and the, and the arguments and fights and disagreements have been continuing. And my daughter at one point uh, 
believed that he he's cheating on her and uh, long story. Mm-hmm. Um, so what my question to you is, how can I talk with her? Uh, and um, because she has said to me recently that if I didn't have children, I would have left uh, and this marriage. At the same time, um, she, for their anniversary, she goes and, um, you know, buys stuff uh, for him and cards and all that that says, you know, I love you so much. And, and I have a feeling that she has this love and hate relationship with her husband. And she has been to psychiatrists and psychologists a few times. Mm-hmm. But I, she, recently, again, she has talked about uh, committing suicide. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine mm, what situation I'm in as a mother of the child that I adore and die for. Mm-hmm. So how can I help her? I don't know what to do anymore. Yeah, that's obviously alarming if she's saying that. Um, and I, how you can help is probably going to be in some ways limited because there's always only so much you can do, but I'm sure you want to do everything that you can do within that. Before the break, you mentioned something about the drug addiction coming back. So I'm wondering yes. how that and, played and, out. Uh, yes, it has come back, but it has stopped again. So well, how long ago? Uh up since last July, apparently she has stopped with the help of a psychiatrist, and she's on medication. Okay, what what medication is she on? Uh, one. Uh, I'm so sorry. I have. Oops. It's on. Even if the name you don't know, do you know what it's one, for? One, one is Wilbutrin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, even if you didn't know the names, if you knew what she was taking medication for. Is it for uh, depression? Anxiety, yeah. um, depression, um, anxiety, depression. Anxiety, uh, depression. Uh, there was something else that. Uh, anxiety, depression, and something else that uh, they put her on this medication, and uh, um, she was doing very well. Actually, she called me at one point uh, and said that I love my psychologist. He's wonderful and uh, uh, she sounded like herself again when she okay. was calling me and telling me that does she um, does she have these love-hate relationships in general have you noticed yes, that I, I think I think she does that with me too uh, she has that with me too I think okay now how strong are these love hates is it you're the queen of the world the best person and then you're the worst person or what what type yes. of love with her husband, yes. With her husband, um, uh, you're the best at one point, and you're the worst, and I want to, you know, kill you or kill me or stuff like that. She yeah. show, she says those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, no, she never told me she wants to kill him, but when they're arguing, uh, a lot of stuff is said, and she cries her heart out, and... You can feel that she's so sorry that she made this decision, but she loves her kids, of course, and uh, she doesn't know what to do, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's it's that love-hate, you know, sometimes we look at um, borderline personality has some of that, but I don't know if that's 
exactly that what she's be, dealing that, with? That, that could, uh, you know, with me, I'm a naturopath myself. I'm seeing that in okay. her, that borderline. I Although she never let me talk to the psychiatrist or psychologist that she was going to, I always asked, let, us, let me go and with you and the talk. She never let me do well, that. Even, but I, yeah, I, but I, so even that's, you know, I understand you want to help, and I was talking about limited what you can do. Uh, that is, in a way, if she wants you to go, that's one thing. But you saying you want to go with her is, in a way, invading her space. I understand. You're right. I've been doing that wrong thing apparently many times. I'm, yeah, right. it seems like that's part of your relationship. Even, you know, I'll notice this, it's something very subtle. When we talk, you and I, there's times where you cut me off or you won't even give me the space in our conversation. And so I've noticed that feeling that I have that I'm imagining she might have had from you too, that there isn't a feeling of respecting her space completely. I think it comes from your own anxiety of wanting to help her fix something, but sometimes you might get too involved or cross the line. I agree. You are yeah. right. So that's why I want you to be aware, of course, I know you want to help her and you'll do everything you can, but there can be ways that when you get too involved, it actually can make it worse rather than better. Um, and in this kind of a situation, she's going to need to help herself a lot. It seems like she's trying to, but even still, it seems like just emotionally she deals with a lot of ups and downs and that yes. makes things challenging. And so she might turn to the drugs to help her with those ups and downs. Unfortunately, I'd rather she turns to the psychiatric medications to get some more stability. But, um, you know, it, it seems like a very unstable life that she has with her husband and the kids. And if you were to talk to her, you know, you could let her know that you understand that she might think that you were against this marriage from the beginning because you were, but that you did really try to accept it and you want what, want what is best for her, but point out to her that if it's going the way it is and she's saying if it wasn't for the kids, you know, staying together for the kids and having these ugly fights is worse for them than being apart. Exactly. And, of course, that's not going to be the only solution because it seems like individually she has a lot of work that she has to do on herself and continue to do. But um, staying together and, you know, the way you're describing it doesn't seem like it's, it's a good option for these, these little kids, which I, you know, breaks my heart that they're going through, through all right. that more than anyone. Um, that's exactly yeah. right. That's what my story is for me, too. Yeah. All right. Okay. So... Uh, as far as borderlines, which I'm guessing, and you kind of guessed it too, um, what do you think? Do you think medication will help her? Well, it can be helpful. So a few things. One, I don't want us to jump to that conclusion. I can't, I'm not going to make that diagnosis. Uh, and also someone can have borderline traits or features and not have the full personality disorder and like anything it's to different degrees if it is borderline personality disorder then it involves really again depending on the degree but serious treatment uh, medication therapy there's things like dbt dialectical behavioral therapy which you can look up by marcia linehan but we don't even know for sure she has that disorder so i wouldn't jump to that conclusion that and go to her and say look you have this so you have to start doing this because she can feel very judged by that, and that's something I think you have to be careful about because I think she's felt that from you before, so we don't want to go there. And in general, people don't want to feel judged. But it could be, and even the way you say it, will meditation help? It can help, but you know, if, if someone has full-blown borderline personality disorder that is severe, 
meditating is not going to solve their problems and that's it. You know, it's not just some um, quick fix or even in the long term a fix that's going to take away what we're dealing with. It's, it's just very challenging for her to be uh, herself, to deal with herself. And so we might have to accept that. We want to help her, but I don't want you to look for some fix. There's no quick fix here. You know, even if she meditated an hour a day, I don't think her problems would just go away. We're dealing with drug addiction. We're dealing with a messy marriage, two kids, possibly personality issues. It's not for sure, um, but definitely a lot of emotional ups and downs. And, and all of that's going to be very challenging uh, to deal with. So just also be aware of that, that don't look for, okay, how do I fix this? There's no fix that's just going to take away the problem. This is a big problem and it's big, meaning that's not going to go away. And also you're not going to be the one that can really do most of it. It has to be her. Now, if she talks to you, you can give her obviously your advice and support, which to me is to recognize that um, it's possible that divorce can, is def if it's a bad marriage, divorce would be better. Depends on what's going on there. If they can work on things, they can try that. But if not, that's not okay. And then if she says she's suicidal at times, again, it's not something you can fix, but that would mean that she needs more serious treatment. And not that you would say, I'm going to talk to your psychiatrist, but you can talk to her and say, have you talked to your psychiatrist or your therapist about these things or the things that you're going through? Um, you know, so that's, it's not something that you can take that away. Even if you, you know, I know you're saying you're a healer, but it doesn't mean you can heal your daughter if she's suicidal. If she is, she needs serious help. And has she ever attempted suicide before? No. Okay. And has she been saying this more recently about the suicide? Uh, she, through last, her husband says through last three years, off and on, she has been saying that. But does she say it in the midst of a fight or when she's kind of in a sad mood? When she's in the sad mood. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, I hope she's talking to whoever she works with, uh, you know, her mental health professionals about those issues, because that's, that's serious, obviously. Um, and, you know, when you talk to her, you can let her know this, it, it, clearly things are not okay the way they are. So some things have to change, and you don't have to even suggest what that is. And I don't want to suggest that divorce is the right option. And even if that happens, it doesn't mean things are going to be okay. But it could be that this is worse for the kids if that's for her reason for staying. It, it could be much more harmful for the kids. But this is tough, and it, there's only so much you can do. And I know she's your one daughter, and the way you talked about it, you invest a lot into her, which I understand. But you have to make sure you're investing into your own life as well, that you're taking care of yourself and having a life not just focused and obsessed with her and, and what's going on with her. I know you might think, how can I focus on me when she's going through all this? Exactly. Um, but there's only so much you can do anyway. So uh, if you can give her one or two hours every so often, that's all you can do. The rest of your time just sitting and worrying about it doesn't help. doesn't help her and it definitely doesn't help you. And so right. focusing, when you say meditation for her, sure. But what about meditation for you? Maybe you already do it, great. But focus on also taking care of yourself because there's only so much you can do with what's going on it's tough it's, it sounds very painful and difficult and in general we can only do so much for other people but especially with something that has all this stuff going on there's not a lot you can do that you can just go and change everything so right. i'm glad she's at least in the hands of some mental health professionals to be getting that i hope she's sharing with them everything she's going through but i would really want you to focus on taking care of yourself as much as you can Thank you for your kind kindness. 
Uh, Dr. Farid, yes. I want her to hear our conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, what would you tell her if if she was talking with you? Well, I mean, I'd want to hear, obviously, from her what she's going through, and I'm, I'm hearing it from her it would likely be different, but that I hope she continues to get help, that she's going through, obviously, a lot. As I mentioned, if the goal is, well, I'm going to just stay married for the kids... Staying married in a bad marriage hurts them. I always tell people um, to, you can work together on the marriage for the kids, but don't just stay in a bad marriage and keep it bad for the kids. That's going to hurt them even more. And she's dealing with a lot. There's been drug addiction in the past. She's feeling suicidal. Clearly, she needs help. She might need more help than what she's getting right now. It might not be enough. She might need more intensive treatment if that's how she's feeling. And even to you, I would say, and if, if she's listening, is I don't like to focus on the labels. That's why even you know I don't do a lot of that, but more focusing on the pain. And so if she's going through pain, she needs more help. Just like if someone is hurting, we have them see a doctor to see how they can deal with the pain. Not because we're judging them as bad or wrong, but we're recognizing that they are hurt. And so she deserves to get some help. So I hope she, she will for herself. And then also for the kids and see what she can do. And it will be an uphill battle, but it's one worth hopefully battling for. And I do wish her the best with that. Thank you so very, very much. Sure. Dr. Farid, how uh, uh, she can listen to this on your Instagram? No, uh, I, I'll t- uh, probably tonight I'll upload it to my SoundCloud page and also my podcast on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes and you put uh, In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, you can listen to the shows or subscribe, and she'll see it there probably by tonight. By tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hello yes hi thanks for calling uh, hi um i have a question about my um son he's one year old okay and um he's his humping high chair um since he was i guess nine months he's what high I chair sorry sure if it's, sorry uh, so i missed what you said about the high chair uh, he humps the high chair. He humps like, the high chair. Okay. He does the pleasure thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and he started doing this since he was nine months old. Uh-huh. I I kept that video um, just today to show his doctor to make sure is that what I'm thinking, and he confirmed just after one second of the video, he confirmed, yes, it is. And he said it's no problem, but I just wanted to get get your opinion because my husband is still thinking it's too early. And... uh, Well, when does your husband think would be okay? Um, I don't know. You think it's too early, that's it. Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I'm glad you showed the, the pediatrician. The pediatrician said it was okay. You know, kids, um, they do feel a, a pleasure or they feel something. Now, you want to call it sexual, and then there's lots of conversations of what does sexual mean. And from a Freudian perspective, everything can be seen sexually, or we think of kids as having sexual desire. But there's also a very simple way of saying it just feels good. 
and he's doing something and that's okay. Now, we'd always want to pay attention. Is he seeing things anywhere that might expose him to something that wouldn't be good? That's something to pay attention to. But I, I wouldn't be overly concerned. And that's actually the approach that's very important for you guys to have is to not make it a big deal because that can actually make it a big deal, right? So right now, it doesn't seem like there's anything too concerning going on. Is it like a constant thing or you mean he does it sometimes when he's sitting in his chair or... Um. He does sometimes, I can say, uh, four to five, five times in a day. Okay. And also when he's on his tummy in a bed, I saw that too. Okay. Um, yeah, like five times. And then sometimes after he does this, he goes to sleep. It's like kind of self-soothing. Okay, so kind of, it's like comforting, yeah. Um, again, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. We We pay attention to what the kid is always doing and... If we see a pattern that concerns us, we pay attention to it. But it doesn't seem like anything I'd want you to worry about. And even I know your husband saying it's too soon. I mean, I'm sh I don't know what he meant. I really said that half jokingly, but half serious. If he was thinking, well, not until he's like a teenager should he do these kinds of things. But kids at very young ages, they will touch themselves. And they, you know, again, it can feel pleasurable or comforting. And they might do that. And as parents, we want to make sure we don't respond too too strongly because that could create anxieties or things related to lots of things the body but even sexual types of things so we don't want to emphasize it too much and, and freak them out mm -hmm. okay perfect yeah thank you so much sure thank you have a great day you too thanks bye um so that was an interesting uh, i'm glad they called about that topic of the child and we see them sometimes do things that we're not sure about and parents understandably we care a lot about our kids and so we see them developing and we wonder is this okay should they do this is it too soon or a lot of times parents will worry that if they see a behavior in their child that this reveals something hidden or secret about them um, i was with some friends this weekend one of my friends he was with his son who's like a year and a few months and he bit into a cup, the styrofoam cup, and he got scared, uh, my friend, of course, because he was worried his son was going to swallow this piece of the styrofoam. So he reacted strongly and uh, opened his son's mouth and pulled it out um, of his son's mouth. And it, in a way, looked cute, actually, because after that happened, you could see the son got overwhelmed and, and didn't know what happened. And then he actually hit his dad kind of in the head. Um, and then after that, even in a very cute way, he, you could tell he kind of felt bad and he said hug and he hugged his dad because he didn't feel very good about it. And they didn't make it that big of a deal. We talked about it a little bit, but sometimes parents will see an interaction like this and think, oh, the child hit and we have to teach them that hitting is so bad and they did something really wrong. So we maybe have to even punish the kid for doing that, for hitting the dad in that moment. And especially at that age, we know that, first of all, he's not going to really get what he's getting punished for anyway. And also, he's having a hard time holding in all his feelings, managing it. And this is how it played out. And so first, we want to try to, as always, be curious and understand. So as I mentioned about the story, we could see that for him, he didn't, first of all, do anything wrong to begin with. But he didn't know what he was doing, and he bit into the cup. His father was worried and had a very strong reaction because of that worry that startled his little boy. And so the boy had a reaction to that. He was scared. 
And when he's there and he's scared and he sees his dad was the thing that made him scared, we can understand his reaction is to hit his dad. He's angry at him. He's expressing that anger towards his dad. And then likely it seems like he felt some level of guilt or remorse or felt bad that he hit his dad and then he hugged his dad and he was holding him. And actually I felt like my friend did a good job of when his son was then hugging him, was comforting him and hugging him and making him feel good, not making him feel bad about what he had done in hitting. And I thought that was that was a, a good way of responding. Sometimes parents think we have to teach these our kids certain lessons about things or we don't recognize that a child is having a hard time dealing with their feelings and we have to give them that space to deal with these things. For example, a parent might, a kid might say to their parents, I hate you. Uh, little kids will say it and then it might come back in the teenage years and parents will often respond very strongly. It's, I hate you. They might even say, how could you hate me? I do so much for you. Or they might do a passive aggressive type of way of guilting the child. Oh, you hate me? Well, you know, actually I love you so much and I guess you hate me even though I love you and make the kid try to make the kid feel bad. But as a parent, we have to be able to manage our own emotions about what is going on. Of course, it doesn't feel good to hear your kid said, I hate you. You'd much rather hear I love you or positive things from your kid as we would with anyone. But as parents, we have to be able to manage these feelings that our child is having, that they are getting angry with us at times and they don't know how to express it, so they say it in this way. Unfortunately, as adults, we do this too at times. We get into fights with each other and we don't know how to express it sometimes and we'll sometimes just want to hurt each other because that's what anger could push us towards and so we'll say something hurtful that we don't even mean so that's what your child is doing they don't quite know what that means sometimes kids will even say things i'm going to kill you or i'm going to do something to hurt you and they don't even know what that means exactly either they just understand that that's the worst thing that's the meanest thing so they say it in that way so as parents we have to be able to be in the moment with with our kids and this is what i always uh, encourage parents to do is to have both at the same time and really we do this as adults but especially with your kids you're in the moment with them but you also have the bigger picture so your child says i hate you and you stay with them in the moment and recognize they're angry and you might even reflect that to them you might say you don't like the way they said it if that's depending on their age but you also have the bigger picture of okay this is my child he's angry he doesn't know how to control his feelings yet or he doesn't exactly know what he's saying so it's coming out in this way so I can understand that and I don't have to react very strongly to it. I don't need to teach him a lesson and that's okay. And then also you have to listen to your own feelings because you might, when you hear your child say, I hate you, what is it bringing up for you? Maybe you have insecurities as a mom or a dad that is being pushed on. When they say, I hate you, you start thinking, wait, does that mean I'm a bad mom or a bad dad? Does that mean I'm not okay as a parent? Or does it bring up other insecurities you might have or feelings you have when you're a child or about your own parents? And so we always have to be paying attention to these types of things that are going on in just a very brief interaction. So much is happening within your child, within you, and within your relationship that you and your child have. And we have to pay attention to all of these things. So we don't want to get too caught up in those moments that we think we have to teach them a lesson. Or, for example, I've worked with kids and families where the kid is biting at preschool and the parents sometimes might be joking but almost seriously they're saying i'm worried he's going to still be biting when he grows up or something and unless your kid is a vampire which they probably are not they're not going to be biting anymore when they're 20 years old and you don't have to worry about that this is their way of expressing what they're feeling or the big feelings they're having that they don't know how to express and so that's our job always as parents is to have 
a feeling of curiosity about what our child is doing. Okay, if my child is biting, that shows there's some kind of anger or aggression or maybe even anxiety that's being expressed in this way. Let's try to understand what's happening rather than just trying to figure out how to stop the biting part. Sometimes we can mistake the symptom for the disease or we focus on the symptom and don't realize what's actually going on underneath. And don't worry that if your child is biting now that they're going to do this or if this child is humping the chair at one years old, that means that when they're 20, they're still going to be at dinner doing these kinds of things. This is what they're doing at one. And more than anything, very often what parents have to do is not create a problem out of something that's not a problem. So your child says, I hate you. And it could just be an instance of your child not knowing how to express their anger, how to deal with their feelings, how to talk about what's going on. And it could end with that. But if you make it a bigger deal and say, I can't believe you said I hate you or I'm such a good mom or I'm such a good dad, that could then now become an issue where your child feels bad about what they said or feels guilty or ashamed or feels like they've hurt you or that they're bad. And now you've created a problem. So very often parents create problems when there isn't one. They try to see if they can fix something that doesn't need to be fixed. But by doing that, they make it an issue. So usually what we want to do is respond to the child with whatever they're expressing in a way of first making them feel okay. And a big issue that parents can have when it comes to this is that when they're in public, they get embarrassed about how they're looking in front of other people and how their kid is looking. So maybe this child, and I don't want to focus on them because I'm not talking with the mother anymore, but at home it's okay. But then if people are around or if they're in a restaurant, now they're going to make the child feel ashamed about what they're going through. And that's where we have a problem, where the child actually is doing something that we're telling them at other times is okay, but now that other people are around, we feel like, do we look bad as parents? Does our kid look bad? And so we're going to judge them or shame them in front of other people. And this happens uh, very often with, with parents. Or your kid is crying, let's say, on a plane. And that's kind of an annoying thing for people to deal with. That of course, when I'm on a plane and a baby is crying, it could be annoying, but I Imagine how hard it is for that baby who's feeling un uncomfortable and not good, and also for the parents who are stressed out and trying to calm this baby down. But parents can sometimes feel like we have to just shut this baby up no matter what. And yes, of course, you're trying your best to calm the baby down and soothe them, but you don't want to do something excessive just because it might be annoying other people. It's your child still first, and your responsibility is to him or her. Yes, if you're in a situation that your child is crying, you may be walk them out or remove them from the situation, but be aware of how you treat your child differently in public compared to when you're at home for several reasons. One is it could be very confusing for the child because sometimes you don't make something a big deal, but then other times you say it's horrible and bad and judge them and make it seem like it never happens. And also it gives them the feeling that other people judging you is the only thing that matters. Yes, of course, as parents, you teach your kids about social things and then maybe there's some things we do at home or we do in private that we don't do in public, but you don't want to make them feel judged or ashamed for doing something that other times we don't make them feel judged or ashamed for. That makes it very confusing to them. Is this thing bad or good? At home, you didn't care when I did this. Now in public, you're telling everyone it's not a big deal. And most people deal with this, but in Iranian culture, it's very strong how much we care about how other people think oh do people think my kid is a good and well-behaved boy or girl or do they look like 
a bad kid who doesn't take care of that means I'm not taking care of him or taking care of her and we take that too personally and we shouldn't be doing that and it's something that happens with parents in general of competing about who's doing a good job parenting who's doing more and taking their kids to more classes whose kid is achieving more and these competitions are really missing the point of what it means to be a parent which is to build a relationship with your child to nurture them and to love them for who they are and help them grow into the best version of themselves not something that other people are going to like or be impressed by so be very aware of how you treat your child differently and judge them in general but especially that distinction between home and outside where really it's more about how you feel other people are judging you rather than actually what your child is doing all right going into our last commercial break you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, Doctor. Hi. Uh, just first of all, thank you for the show. My and uh, it's, it's, it's great. And uh, I just had a question about uh, my um, almost five-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think she's suffering from OCD. I mean, I, I personally, I, I'm, I definitely have OCD. My wife has OCD. I'm I've been always in, I'm a professional, always been in leadership positions, and I think one thing that definitely drives me in that direction is my OCD, mm-hmm. which I know for the fact that OCD is a factor to be a leader. So uh, It can be. I mean, usually you, usually we're talking about, you know, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and some of the traits, but not uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, because that could usually be more debilitating. Um, but people who have OCPD, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, they tend to be very organized and orderly. They can be sometimes overly rigid about rules and things, but they can be very uh, perfectionistic, which can drive them, but also hurt them in different ways as well. But yeah, it, yeah. but OCD, and sometimes we think they're the same thing. Obsessive compulsive dis- disorder, which deals more with the obsessive thoughts that can be very intrusive and hurtful. And then the compulsions, which tend to be rituals to deal with those obsessive thoughts, can be more of a debilitating uh, psychological illness than OCPD. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a combination. Like okay. I had the parts that really helped me, and my then parts that always hurt me and make me tired. Sometimes you get stuck like doing things over and over. Mm-hmm. And I had this since I was a kid. You know, okay. before even I knew myself about doing stuff, and I couldn't stop. I tried to read about it, educate myself. I was always hesitant to get pills and all that. But now I want to just to my daughter okay. and uh, even from the early on I, I started and my wife has her own I don't want to get there but I, I, I have like no doubt that this definitely exists in the in, in the genes so uh, even from early on she started showing signs and uh, so now that it's and I, my, my wife is a like follows your father like very closely and reading CD I mean listening to mm-hmm. CDs reading books whatever so I mean and, and I know the best suggestion always has been just ignore it don't try to fight it don't try to stop her if she's doing something over and over and now it's getting to a level that really is scaring me just to give an example like if she goes to the bathroom and she want to just dry herself she can't just she she doesn't stop she she's not convinced that she's fully dry and 
she keep like drying herself to a level mm. that she has to do it for five minutes and she cannot stop. She actually doesn't want to have an underwear to a level that she says she's, it's always wet and we have to just actually let her sleep some night just with a skirt. And uh, so it's, it's really scaring me. And I'm talking to my wife and she says, you know what Dr. Holaka would say, we have to put her on medication. And I, for life of me, and I'm, maybe I read too much or I follow media so much, or I, I don't know, I can't, I cannot convince myself that I'm going to put my five-year-old on medication and yeah. chemicals. I cannot wrap my head around it. And I said with nail and feet, I said, sorry, with all due respect, I don't know who's suggesting this. I am not putting my kid on medication. So I'm literally getting, honestly, uh, I, I, and, Marv, and I'm, I said, let's go talk to the psychologist and all that, but just, I, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong, I see this wrong, or I don't know, I can't just convince myself to put a, a little kid yeah. on, on medication, so please, yeah. No, I can Go understand ahead. that, especially at that age, um, and you know, even when you say chemicals, I get it, medication can have an effect, we're putting all sorts of things in our bodies all the time, not to say that they're the same as medication, and I think the suggestion that you made of also seeing a psychologist, I would highly recommend that you guys meet with the psychologist uh, individually for her, but also as a family, and she could do some uh, play therapy, could be helpful to her. So even if you're saying, I don't want to do medication, which I wouldn't rule out completely because what you're talking about is pretty significant and unfortunately can get worse. There's no guarantee, but a lot of times that's what we see. And so because of that, the suffering that she goes through and also getting worse and harder to treat later on, could mean that medication is something to consider, but I would first want to first of all get her to see a psychologist to, just to get assessed more carefully, and then also play therapy might be helpful to her um, at that age. She's not even five yet, you said, so less than five. Even play therapy can be tough, but definitely the reason why I say this for some parents to have this expectation that well, therapy means talking to a therapist, but for kids. That's not what therapy is going to look like. If you even like ask your child, but you want to give them that space that you don't ask them unless they want to talk about it, they maybe will just say, oh, we played with dolls or we colored. And you might think, wait, I'm paying someone to color with my kid. But that's what play therapy and art therapy and therapy with a child can look like. So just to have that expectation. But I would definitely take her to see someone. And like I said, I wouldn't completely rule out medication because I don't like the the sometimes we use this term of like a chemical imbalance and it doesn't seem like that's really an accurate way of looking at things but sometimes it could help bring more of a balance into how the child is experiencing things or how an individual experiences things especially with taking away the obsessions or reducing at least the obsessions which can be tough because unfortunately you know you could show her that something is dry or tell her it's dry but it just won't convince her and that that's very tough and it's hard for her to change that can you tell me more about other obsessions or these kind of behaviors she does yeah so this was the more severe one as far as other things she does like there's a gate around her playroom and when i close the gate or she closes the gate she always wanted maybe triple check to make mm -hmm. sure the gate is closed yeah. and it's funny then when i was like a teenager i had an obsession like that sometimes i would close my my room though the door and i was just mm -hmm check it like three times and I would push it hard make sure it's closed. So some of the stuff I can see that I was doing as a kid and uh, it, it, it's so, yeah. I mean, in a bizarre and 
sad way amazing that how this genes work. Yeah, you know? I mean, because, you know, uh, it, yeah, it's you know, OCD definitely has a genetic component to it, a, a heavy one actually, and you know, like most or almost essentially any psychological illness we talk about, it has some basis in something that's good. You know, it's important to be meticulous and to check things, but in a way, we can see it as this is kind of like your checking system going on overdrive. So rather than checking once and that's good, you check three times and still don't feel convinced and have to maybe check a fourth time and leave still not feeling very good. So it's something that makes sense to be orderly and check things and care about cleanliness, but it's on overdrive and that's what causes the the problems and the pain. I'm sure it's interesting for you to see the parallels between yourself and your own experience growing up and even still in what you see in your daughter. We, we, we know that it has a huge genetic influence and that's also what tells us in a way there's something going on in the brain and for people with ocd what one of the things people can experience it's something like for most people a lot of random thoughts will jump into their head but then they just can switch off and think about something else unfortunately with someone with ocd it's like the film reel keeps playing the same film so they think about something and they keep thinking about it oh what if i hit someone with my car oh what if i hit someone with my car oh that'd be so horrible and they can't switch off from that reel, unfortunately. And there does seem to be some brain connections. Again, we don't have clear-cut science on exactly what's going on, but the brain definitely seems to be involved in ways that medication can be helpful. So if your daughter is suffering to the point where she can't even function, that's where, as always, we look at it, the trade-off of medication versus not medication is Yes, there are side effects and maybe there's other effects that at a young age we want to be aware of. And definitely, I'm on the conservative side. But if your child really couldn't even function um, socially and personally, then we'd have to look at that cost-benefit of that. And, and I get that it's scary. So I'm not saying, oh, immediately put her on medication. But I wouldn't close the door on it completely, even with how young she is, because what you're describing seems like it could become, it maybe already is debilitating, but it can become pretty debilitating. Okay. Can, yeah. can you just tell me, please, a little bit more as far as our role as parents? Like, yeah. I know that you said, like, just ignore ignorance. So ignorance being the foundation, I think. Anything well, I wouldn't say just completely ignoring, but definitely not judging is very important, which is always going to be the case. But especially with this, because, you know, the way because it could sometimes seem like we see our kid going through something like this and you're like oh my god why are you checking so many times or we know and parents sometimes almost have this feeling it's like it seems like they should be able to control it but it's not just something she can control and maybe because you've experienced it yourself you're aware of that now interestingly because you've experienced it yourself it might give you a certain empathy and compassion for what she's going through at the same time, because you've gone through it yourself and maybe at times you disliked this part of yourself, you might consciously or unconsciously take that out on her. So when you see parts of yourself in her that you don't like in yourself, all parents can do this and all people in general, but especially with our kids, you might treat her negatively or judge her negatively or take out some anger on her. So that's something that you and, and your wife, since you're saying she has similar issues, want to be very aware of. that we're not taking out some anger on her because it's something that we see in ourselves that we don't like, that we wish we could just change. So that's something I'd want you guys to both pay attention to. But the other aspect when I was saying that don't think of it as something in her control, because I work with a lot of 
families and say, oh, you know, she does this or he's doing that. And they get annoyed by them and they think they can just control it easily. But the analogy I use is like if two people walk into a room and one of them feels cold and the other one doesn't. Yes, they can put on a jacket or do some things. But that feeling of cold is not something that just is in their control. And we can't be mad at them. Oh, why are you cold right now? That's just how their body feels. So her brain is does seem like it's a little bit different in this way, which does cause her pain more than anyone else. But we don't want to make her feel judged about it and also make her feel like it's just something in her control and in her volition to just change it and she's not changing it. Because that's not the case. It's not something so simple like that. No, that was good. Thank you. The, the main thing for me was the main takeaway. I didn't know that these therapies, they involve kids. I thought it's me and her mom just going and talk to a, to a, to a specialist. But, well, that could uh, be I, helpful, I too. I think that would be, you know, and maybe even you guys can do family therapy. There's different, you can do, there's different elements and you can do any or all of them. Um, there's parenting kind of therapy. So you and your wife would go and that could be helpful. Uh, there's family therapy where you guys would go with her. Does she have any siblings? No. Okay. So the three of you could do family therapy together with a family therapist. And then there's also a child psychologist who could do play therapy, art therapy, and those kinds of things for her, which can also be helpful. And I would, I would recommend that as well, but especially to get her to see someone. And especially, um, one thing I'd also want to mention is that OCD is something that really you want to go to someone who specializes in treating OCD because it's a little different than other illnesses and that the treatment can be different. So you can have a talk therapist who's very good at dealing with depression and most anxiety, but OCD can be a different type of animal to, to deal with. So I would keep that in mind when you're looking for a psychologist is that just not anyone will do or just because of the name or something like that. You want someone who actually has experience with OCD, which does seem pretty clearly like what your child is dealing with or OCD-like symptoms. And so make sure you, you keep that in mind. How is the best way to research something like that? Does it show the specialty? Sometimes it does. You know, there's like websites like Psychology Today, um, which which a lot of therapists will post about themselves and what they do and what who they work with. You might have to ask around to doctors and, you know, her pediatrician, and they might not know, but they might know someone. So, yeah, it can be a little bit difficult to, to find that. Um, but I would emphasize that, that um, OCD, you know, here in Los Angeles, uh, Dr. Tabasan Vahidi is a very good therapist working with OCD. And so, well, you know, even when I have clients and if OCD is the main issue, I refer them to her or other people because I know that it requires definitely a specific type of treatment that you want someone who specializes in. So I would do the due diligence in finding someone um, that has that expertise because that, that will be very helpful. And as I mentioned before, the medication, I can totally hear you and you're saying just the thought of it makes you feel like it's uh, like a no-go no matter what. But if we see that your daughter is suffering so much and we can even still will be conservative, but we don't want to close that door completely because it could be something that could reduce her suffering significantly. It has that possibility. And so we don't want to close that. We can try other things first, but the way you're describing it to me, that sounds pretty severe. That's not a, a small thing that she's dealing with. And my guess is it's going to start to interfere with her school life, her social life, how she feels personally. And so it can really lead to a lot of suffering for her. And because of that, I wouldn't want you to close that door. Oh, that, good. That's good to know. And that's definitely... I. 
I, I was just hoping that it's just going to go away by itself. And, uh, More than likely it won't. Look, you're still dealing with, you're still that way, right? You still have a lot of these features. So it's not something that's going to go away. And even when you say ignore, I kind of get what you're saying. But ignore, it doesn't mean that because it's going to disappear if we ignore it. If we pretend like we don't see it, it goes away. No, you actually want to make sure you're paying, paying very close attention to it yourselves. You might not make it a big deal, but it's there. It's a real thing. It's not going anywhere just like you still carry those features in you. It's not going to go in your daughter. Uh, you know, that's not likely. Yeah, Things with like OCD is, you know, people get depressed and that can kind of come and go, be chronic in that way, uh, you know, or episodic in that way. But something like OCD is something that tends to just be there. Now, it might flare up and get more intense when they deal with stress and other things. But definitely the way you're describing her, it's not something likely that she's just going to grow out of. So we want to keep an eye on it. We want to get her help. We don't want to close the door on medication. Doesn't mean we have to jump straight to that, but we want to see how we can help her. Um, and so I hope some of those things I said about the approach, you guys will keep in mind to make sure she doesn't feel judged or you guys don't put any anger or negativity onto her because of things you're dealing with yourself about yourself. Yeah, thank you very much. And just there is another uh, behavior that she has that I want to see if that's related to. Okay, we have so, just about a minute, so uh, yeah, go, okay. go right ahead. So, and she's very, very shy, and she never de defend. Uh, like, let's say they are lining up to do something with other kids. She always let other people to jump in front of her and yeah. to go do the stuff first. It can these two be related? Yeah, I mean, you, I think you'll you'll tend to see people who are dealing with OCD or especially anxiety. You know, OCD is an anxiety issue, so they can tend to be a little bit more either you want to call it introverted. Sometimes we'll use the word shy. Sometimes we don't want to use that word shy. It can feel judging, so be aware of that. Um, but they tend to be a little bit more timid. And, you know, if you're more anxious, you're looking at things going wrong, you're going to kind of sit back a little bit more than just put yourself out there. So it's likely she's going to be a little bit more withdrawn. If you go to a party, birthday party, she's probably more likely to be the kid that sits by your leg for a while and looks around before she goes and plays. And I mentioned about this earlier in the show that we want to encourage her to get out there a little bit, but not push her in a way that makes her feel uncomfortable either. So it's finding that right balance of supporting her to grow, but and but seeing her as she is and not forcing her to be something else. Okay. Thank yeah. you very much. Sure. Thank you so much for your call. Have a great day. All right. We've reached the end of the show. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners. Ghazaleh was here to start the show. Farid is here to wrap it up. Uh, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Have a wonderful day.